This message is from Living Rock Church, and we trust you'll be really equipped, envisioned, and encouraged as you listen today. I really hope that you are enjoying uh, going through the book of Mark. For those of you that may be visitors or just here for the first time, in the last few months we've been going through the gospel of Mark. And um, one of the things that we really wanted to happen during this time, and one of my personal desires for me, is that in going through this book, that I get to know Jesus. I don't mean to get to know about him and the things he did, but actually get to know him. And, you know, biographies are great, but they're just biographies. And if you read a biography of a famous person, you may feel like you know a bit more about them. But this isn't a biography of a famous person. This is the living word of God. And the author of the gospel is in you. So if you've got any questions about what's been written, ask the author. Because he's in you and ready to answer those questions. Ask him when you wonder and ponder about things. Ask him. And the person whom this gospel is about, you've become one with on a soul level. How wonderful is that? So I really hope for you that... that, that In the pages of Mark, the Holy Spirit is really making this come alive for you and that you are experiencing Jesus and actually getting to know him as your friend as well as your saviour. What I'd like to do today is um, read from Mark 7. So if you just want to turn with me to chapter 7. And I'd like to read just a few verses today. I just want to focus on about six verses, that's it. We read through three chapters last week. Who enjoyed reading through those chapters? Because that was great, wasn't it? Just to read the Word of God together. You know, when we do that, something happens. When we read it at the same time together, something happens. And I think last week, there were wonderful gems that came through the body um, of revelation as we we read through the Gospel together. And um, I hope that we'll do... We'll do more of that. We'll read the scriptures publicly. I think we need to do that, brothers, is to lead the the congregation in reading the scriptures out loud together because something happens when we do that. But today, I'd like to focus on um, verse 24. So we're going to read this short little section, which is about the Syrophoenician woman, um, starting in verse 24, and we'll read through to verse 31. So it says, And from there... He, that's Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon, to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. So we've got this little 
story about what happened to Jesus in this little journey that he made. But it's a, only a short portion of the scriptures, and it can look like a little journey, but actually it's a lot more than you might think. Um, I'm going to ask you a question that might be a bit random. Who here likes maps? Any fans of maps? There's always a few map fans around. I've got to be honest with you, I love maps. No. There's something of the beauty of maps that's lost with your sat-nav. I love, I love maps. I can sit and look at a map for hours just studying maps. They're just so interesting. So, I'm going to put a map up for you today. So if the guys could put it up on the screen. Any second now. There we go. So, in reading this story, I really wanted to see, well, actually, where did Jesus go? Maybe how long it took for the journey and, and why? And I want just to really consider that with you this morning. Because I think this was a significant journey for Jesus. And you might, you might want to call today a divine detour. It seemed to be a, a bit of a detour. If you know about Jesus' ministry and the area where he ministered, David mentioned last week that um, there's lots of instances of Jesus crossing the Sea of Galilee. You know, every few minutes they get, well, not every few minutes, obviously, but every instance they seem to get in a boat and go across to the other side. And they were forever going back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. And I was talking with someone recently, I think it was Simon Rowling, we were talking about the Sea of Galilee, weren't we? Saying, do we know much about the Sea of Galilee? And I found out that it, it is the lowest fresh water lake in the world. And it's the second lowest body of water in the whole world, second to the Dead Sea. It's only about 150 feet deep. But what's amazing, what I read recently was in 1989, they found on the bottom of that lake the oldest known settlements of humans. The oldest known settlements of humans. And I just thought to myself, that was down on the bottom of that lake and the creator was going back and forth across the top. <laughs> just the wonderful, wonderful poetry of that position. Jesus was back and forth across this lake. And he was ministering. If you can see the Sea of Galilee, it's right down the bottom of that map. Look, I know there's lots of arrows on it. Just ignore the arrows and the numbers. They're just different um, uh, events in the Gospels. But he was crossing all the time, back and forth, and ministering. And then he decided, as we've just read in verse 24, he arose. So from what had just happened before, he arose from there and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now you can see Tyre, it's up there in the north. Can you see that? So Jesus took quite a long journey. It's about 40 miles from Capernaum to Tyre. Now, 40 miles, that's not that long. We get in our car, we'd be there in, what, an hour? But if you're doing that on foot, on small, broken roads, then actually it's quite a long journey. And it would take you a number of days. And then from there, he went north up to Sidon. And what's really interesting is at the beginning of this account we've just read, he goes to Tyre... And then it says that in verse 31, then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon back round to Decapolis, which is at the bottom. So Jesus didn't go back down via Capernaum. He went up to Sidon and then all the way around the top, look, so you can see through Bethsaida and down to Decapolis. And there was a reason why Jesus did that. And that's what I want to look at with you today. What we have to understand is that Jesus was leaving his mission field. That was his mission field down the bottom. 
And actually, this isn't all the map of Palestine. It goes further down towards Jerusalem. That was Jesus' mission field. So you have to wonder why Jesus would take the time to leave that mission field, head off north to Tyre, and then go even further to Sidon. These were significant cities, Tyre and Sidon. They were part of Syria, which is over there on the right, but they were actually independent principalities within a region of about 20 miles. They were independent cities, and they were famous cities as well. The sailors that came from Phoenicia and that coast there, they were the first sailors that sailed using the stars. Up to that point, every other sailor would hug the coastline. But the sailors that came from there learned to track by the stars, and it led them as far north as Cornwall, and they came to trade uh, with the tin mines of Cornwall. So it was a significant place, and we've only got a little snapshot of what happened here. But I think so much more happened there that, for whatever reason, Mark has not included for it. He's just given us this one little adventure, if you like. Yeah. <coughs> it's a curious thing for Jesus to suddenly depart and go north, because he's in the midst of his ministry. And so I've been pondering this, thinking, why did you do that, Lord? I've been asking the author, why did you do that? You see, in January, when I was speaking from Mark, um, one of the things we looked at was this word, immediately. Does anyone remember that? Immediately. And it meant to do something without detour, without distraction, to not get derailed from something, but just to go straight from point A to point B, God's point A to God's point B. And that's how Jesus ministered. He went from God's point A to God's point B, and he didn't let himself get distracted or detoured. But this seems like maybe a distraction, maybe a detour. So I got to thinking, there must have been a reason why Jesus decided to do that. And I asked the Lord and said, Lord, why did you leave? Why did you go outside of Palestine, outside of Israel? Because that wasn't your calling. And he said to me, the Holy Spirit led me. The Holy Spirit led me because everywhere Jesus went, the Holy Spirit led him. One of the things that Jesus was able to do was recognize the moment. When a moment was upon him, a divinely appointed moment, a kairos moment, a moment of opportunity, he was sensitive to the Holy Spirit and he was obedient to God and obedient to his Father. This was one of those moments, folks. Because Jesus needed to get out of where he was at the time because of what was going on. Now, when we read through um, the chapters last week, I think it was Ruth Favel mentioned this phrase which is in Mark 8.15. And it says, um, it talks about the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Anyone remember that? What does that mean? And if you just turn with me to Mark 3 verse 6. What we see here, this is the, um, the context is the story of the man with the withered hand, and Jesus heals him on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees see this, they're really angry about it, so angry that they go out and they decide to plot against him with the Herodians. And it says in verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. How are we going to destroy Jesus? And you have to understand the significance of what that means because the Herodians, although not much is known about them, it's believed that they were a political party. They were Jews that were friendly to, 
the Herod kings, and had a very much a Greek way of thinking. And they were quite worldly. They were very much political um, operators. The Pharisees, as I'm sure you know, were one of two religious sects at the time. The Sadducees and the Pharisees. Do you know the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees? I'm going to say it, Rich. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. The Pharisees did, so far I see. Anyway, you'll remember that now. But the Pharisees were puritanical, as we know. And actually, to have anything to do with the Herodians, these people were tainted by the politics of the day. The Pharisees were above all of that in their minds. So actually, to collude with someone like that is a big deal. That's how much they hated Jesus. That's how much they really, really hated the Lord. One of the sayings that the Pharisees used to have was, Head south if you want to be pious, head north if you want to be rich. And there was a view at the time that actually in this northern region that you can see that around Galilee, that the standard of living was pretty good. Agriculture was very healthy and people had a higher standard of living and people would make money up there. But if you wanted to be holy and pious, you would head down towards Jerusalem where the schools were and you were trained to be someone like a Pharisee or a teacher of the law. So the Pharisees looked down their nose at anyone that was involved in commerce and business in that way. But they were colluding with the Herodians because they hated Jesus. And I think one of the things that we have to understand, it's easy to look at the Pharisees and say, well, they they just didn't like him because he was saying things that they didn't want to hear. But actually, you have to understand that Jesus was breaking all of the taboos with everything he was saying. If you look back at the preceding passage, go back to Mark 7. Look back at the preceding passage from the one we've just read. Jesus is talking here about what defiles a person. And he's saying, look, it's not what goes into you, it's what comes out of your heart that defiles you. Just in the preceding section to that, he's talked about the Pharisees and how they'd got all of these rules that they'd added to God's law, and those rules became more important than keeping God's law. They were so interested in their own religious rules. They had hundreds of them that they added to the commandments of God. But what you have to understand is when Jesus said, it's not what goes into you that makes you unclean, the Pharisees are listening. And for the Pharisees, that's heresy. In fact, in Leviticus, in Leviticus 11, it talks about pure and unclean, pure foods and unclean foods. And it was right for for the people of Israel not to let unclean foods come into their body. So Jesus seemed to be saying something that was even contrary to the scriptures. Several hundred years earlier, in the time of the Maccabees, there was a revolt. It's called the Revolt of the Maccabees because the invading commander, Antiochus Epiphanes, ordered Jews to eat unclean foods. And they believed in the law so much that they refused to do it on point of death. And now you have this upstart called Jesus that says, oh, it's not what you put into your mouth that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your heart. So you can understand why they're angry, can't you? I'm not saying they were right. I'm just saying that we have to understand the protagonists that we're reading about. We have to understand what makes them tick. Why they feel the way that they do. And understand them better. So Jesus was this northerner coming from this northern region, 
He was a peasant, and he thought he knew theology better than all of the Pharisees and all of the Sadducees. You can understand why they were annoyed. So they got together with the political class and said, look, you're worried because he could be inciting rebellion against the Herodian kings. We're worried because he could be inciting heresy against the faith. We've got a common enemy here, and we need to get rid of him. I think the lesson for me is that Jesus knew what it was like to be under pressure. At this point in his life, Jesus was under so much pressure. Theologians sometimes divide his three-year ministry, three-ish year ministry, into three different years. The year of what they call inauguration. The first year, the, the middle year, the year of popularity, sometimes called. And the third year, the year of opposition. And that's where we are now at this point in Mark's Gospel. Jesus was under a lot of pressure. He knew they were plotting against him. And this was all coming to bear on him. And at this point, he arose and he went away to Tyre and Sidon. So you can see this was a significant time for him. And it was a significant decision as well. He needed to get away. It was a Kairos moment for him. So I got to thinking, looking at that, it looks like Jesus is running away, doesn't it? He's come under this pressure. He's decided it's all a bit too much for him. And he says to his disciples, come on, boys, let's pack up our stuff. Let's go up to Tyre and Sidon. We'll have a much easier time up there. Now, if you know Jesus, you know that's not Jesus. He had a purpose in everything that he did. Everything. And I think this was a significant time for him because I think this journey took a number of weeks, potentially maybe a couple of months. And I think there was a lot that happened during that journey, maybe between Jesus and his disciples, that we don't read about. But it was necessary for Jesus to get away and to get some space in order for God to do what he wanted to do. You see, I think two things happen on this time away. The first thing is that it was a time of preparation for him. It was a time of preparation. When we go over a couple of chapters to Mark 9, we've got the transfiguration. And then in the chapters that follow, we're on the road now to Jerusalem. Do you know one of the things I've always wondered about Jesus, and I have asked him and he hasn't told me yet, is because he knew his destiny, did he ever, ever have a pit in the bottom of his stomach? Do you know that feeling? You know that feeling when you've got something coming up? You're not fearful of it. You're not even necessarily worried about it. But you don't want to do it. You know you've got to go through something. And you know you'll do it. You'll know you'll get through it. But when you think about it, just a pit forms in the bottom of your stomach. You think, I don't really want to do that. But I know I'm going to have to do it. And I wondered whether Jesus felt like that sometimes. Because he knew what was coming. And actually in these chapters following, he starts to talk to the disciples about it. I think when they're on this journey, he started to show them, look, guys, this is, this is what's coming now. Now we're coming into the opposition. Now the pressure's building. This is where it's all going to go. And I need to be ready for that. I need to be trusting my Father and drawing the strength I need from the Holy Spirit to face this. Don't ever think that this was a breeze for the Lord or that Jesus just calmly took everything in his stride and never felt you know, his blood pressure rise at all. 
I believe Jesus felt the pressure. And I believe that because he's walked a road that he's asked us to walk and follow him. And I don't believe he's done anything that was easy for him that'll be hard for us. I think he's done everything that we can do like him. And in this time, he drew upon the Lord. You know, this morning, I really have it on my heart, the Lord's really put it on my heart, that there are people here that are under pressure right now. Not just something coming in in front of you, but something from the side and maybe something from behind. In other words, pressure on more than one side. Someone I was talking to this week said to me, isn't it funny how sometimes a load of things always happen at once? Something goes wrong, and then something else goes wrong, and then something else goes wrong. We don't believe in luck, folks, good or bad. But sometimes God will let things into our life at the same time, and it compounds the pressure on us. And in those times, we have to recognize the moment to get some space to seek God and to find his peace and his rest in that moment. When we feel crowded in on, we need to lay hold of God's peace. You know, one of the things that we've already looked at is Jesus being in the boat and the storm rose up because the Sea of Galilee had these steep-sided hills and wind would whip down and it would whip up the water. And in that moment, the disciples panicked, but Jesus got up and he commanded the winds and the waves to be still. He had peace. The disciples were okay. They were never in danger. You know why? Because Jesus was in the boat. And you're never, ever really in danger because Jesus is in you. Jesus is in the boat. No matter where you go, Jesus is in the boat. And that's all you need. Whatever pressure's coming upon you, whatever you're feeling, even if you're feeling overwhelmed, I'm sure we've all felt like that at one time or another, but I believe some people are feeling overwhelmed today. That the waves could come over the side at any time. And God wants you to know today that it doesn't matter how big those waves are, Jesus is in the boat. And that's all you need, is to look to him. Well, you know what? Jesus had to look to him as well. You know why Jesus wasn't worried in that boat? It's not because he was the son of God. He didn't stand up in the boat and say, I'm the son of God. And I know in the story it says, they said of him that even the wind and the waves obey him. Do you know why the wind and the waves obeyed him? This is my personal theory. I'll just qualify this for my brothers. This is my personal theory. It wasn't because he was a son of God. It's because he was submitted to the Father and he had the Holy Spirit. You see, what gave Jesus his authority was not his sonship, but his submission to the Father. He gave all of that majesty up when he restricted himself to a human vessel. And he depended entirely upon the Holy Spirit. And it was because he was submitted to his father in every situation that his father gave him all the authority he needed in every situation. And it's the same for us. The more submitted you are, the more authority you will find in every single situation. That's your answer, is to lay yourself down before the Lord and fully submit yourself in the midst of the storm. That's where Jesus' confidence was that day in the boat. It was in the Holy Spirit. I have the Spirit in me. It's like Jesus was saying, 
Jesus is in the boat to himself. The Holy Spirit's here, and that's all I need. We will face opposition, folks, because you see, the opposition that Jesus faced wasn't because he was a troublemaker. It was because of who he is. Not was, is. He is radical to the things of this world. He is other than the things of this world. He will stand in opposition to the things of this world because they are wrong and he is right. And if Jesus is in you, you will find opposition. You'll find it in other people. You'll find it in an enemy that will come against you. But Jesus is in the boat. So we need have no fear. But what I want to say to you today is it's okay to feel that pressure. The Lord wants you to know it's okay. Don't feel like a failure if you feel overwhelmed. Don't be condemned about that. But what you do need to do is to look to Jesus. You need to find his peace today and find your confidence in him. And what Jesus needed was to find some headspace and some heart space. Headspace and heart space. The enemy would like you to live in your head. The enemy would like you to live in your head. Let me explain what I mean by that. When you got saved, your heart was renewed. But unfortunately, your brains were not. So like me, you have this brain that is subject to old programming, and the Holy Spirit is bending your mind and rewriting your thought patterns. The enemy knows that's your weak point. So the enemy wants you to think about everything that you face, every situation you face, whatever pressures you face, he wants you to think about it in there. He wants you to analyse it, he wants you to rationalise it, he wants you to obsess about it, and then come to a place where you worry about it, and you're rendered powerless. God wants you to live in here. Because you see, although the enemy wants you to live here, God can minister to you here, And when this is right, when your heart is in the right place, your heart can tell your head what to think. And this is a fundamental thing for Christians, that we often live in our heads and we don't let our hearts rule our heads. You know that that phrase, um, you know, let your, your, your head rule your heart? Well, let your heart rule your head. Because your heart is a new creation. With the mind of Christ. To reprogram your mind. Jesus knew that he needed headspace. He needed to get away from the Pharisees that were constantly coming at him and the Herodians. And he needed some space to just hear from his father and let God minister to him and prepare him for the next stage. The second thing is it was a time of productivity for him. Productivity. He didn't go up there just to have a rest. It wasn't like a spa day in Tyre or something like that. I've heard there's some great steam rooms in Sidon, boys. Let's, let's just go, let's have some me time. I feel I need some me time. Do you think Jesus ever had me time? Now, we have to be careful with this, because what we're not saying is that it's not okay to have a rest and to recharge the batteries. It's not right for us to go full pelt all the time. And some Christians get caught in the trap of doing that. If I'm not running full speed, then I'm not pleasing God. And you know what? They look like hamsters on a wheel. 
And you know what? The far, faster you run, the faster that wheel will turn and the faster you have to run. But Jesus' me time was actually time with the Father. Yes. See, the best thing you can do for me time is to make it God time. That doesn't mean I'm telling you to go out and, and, okay, if I need that kind of time, I need to read at least three books of the Bible. I'll get through maybe three Gospels. That's not what we're saying. We're saying it needs to be qualitative time with your Father, with the Holy Spirit ministering to your heart. You know, just an hour like that can be so productive. So productive. That's why the psalmist said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than spend a thousand years elsewhere. Because one day in the rest and presence of God can be more productive than a thousand... Is it years or days? I can't remember. It's days, isn't it? A thousand days. It can be more productive just being in the rest of God. And Jesus knew this. He recognised the moment when he needed that time. He wasn't navel-gazing, folks, up in Tyre. And the other thing is he didn't lose sight of his mission. We've just read about this wonderful woman, this Syrophoenician woman, who approached Jesus. Now, when he responded to her, did you see what he said? He said, he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jesus was on about the lost children of Israel. He was saying, this is my mission. The children of Israel, I'm here to bring the kingdom of God to the children of Israel, and they will take it to the ends of the earth. So Jesus hadn't lost sight of his mission at all. And when we spend time recuperating and waiting on God, it's not that we say, okay, well, I'm just going to take time out from the mission. You're not going to see me, guys, for a while. I'm just going to be over here with God, and I'm just going to forget everything else. It doesn't have to be like that at all. The mission is who we are. It's, it's a core part of our being, yeah. is the kingdom of God. But even in the rest times, we don't lose sight of that. Because if we do, it can drop down our priorities, and that's just not right for us. He didn't put his feet up during this time. It was a productive time. The woman's, da- the woman's daughter was delivered. He didn't refuse to do it for her. Actually, he was productive. And do you know what? I think Mark has just given us just one story. And as as often is the case, the gospel writers give us what we need to know. I think there were lots more things that he did during this journey. I think he was ministering to the disciples, for one. I think he was preparing them. You know, just a a, a chapter or two later, Peter's confessing him as the Christ. I think he was preparing his disciples for what was to come, as well as preparing himself. So when we take time out to listen to God and to receive from him, it doesn't need to be an unproductive time. It's not a time for navel-gazing. It's a time to draw on the Lord. And I think that's really important. And for Jesus, it was actually a time for him to, to make a demonstration of what he'd just been teaching them about. The passage just before the one we read about being purified by what comes out of your heart. Well, he was talking about foods. But we all know that actually there was a a greater spiritual truth there. That it wasn't that God was going to cleanse all foods. It's that God was going to cleanse all peoples. That there wouldn't be clean peoples and unclean 
holy and unholy peoples, that God was going to do much more. So when he healed this, this daughter, when he delivered her, Jesus was actually sowing seeds in the disciples' minds for what was to come. Can you remember when Peter in Acts 10, when he has the vision, I think he looked looked back to this and realized that Jesus had gone outside of Israel, that Jesus was ministering to Gentiles without prejudice, and it sowed the necessary seeds for what later came, which was a gospel explosion, an explosion to the ends of the earth. And in just this little journey that Jesus takes, in this little event, Jesus does something that could have had such significance in the blinkered minds of his disciples so that later they were open to what the Spirit wanted to say, which was, guys, this is going to go all over the world. Wow, that's right. You know, sometimes God can surprise you in those moments. When you take time with him, you can be surprised by the fruit that will come out of it. There's two different types of fruit. There's immediate fruit where something happens and you see God moving and people are blessed. And then there is seed-bearing fruit. Seed-bearing fruit is fruit that has the seeds in it of further things down the line. And often God will move in a way that has an immediate fulfillment, an immediate blessing, but also has seeds in it for something that's going to happen in the future. And sometimes God moves through us in those times and we see an immediate blessing But sometimes we need to see the seeds that have come and keep those things in mind because down the road we're going to need those and we're going to see those seeds germinate and bring us into all that God has for us. Sometimes God has to change the context for us. Jesus had to move to a different region and I think there was a necessary change of context for Jesus. He had to get away from Galilee where he'd been ministering in order for God to do things in him and prepare him for what was coming next. And the last thing I want to say is that one thing I love about this story is, you know when you first read it, I think someone mentioned last week, I can't remember who it was now, someone mentioned that this response of Jesus is, you know, why would I give the, the children's bread to the dogs? You know, when you first read it, you think, That sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? (laughs) Very harsh, yeah. Now, for some of you with more dynamic translations, like the NLT, I don't know what the NLT says. Maybe it says um, little dogs or something like that. Have you got an NLT? Just Just says dogs, yeah. So there's a nuance there in the translation that's really being missed, which is that there were two words for dogs. And often Jews did use the not-so-nice word for those that were non-Jews or Gentiles. But actually, that's not the word that Jesus uses. He uses a word for a little house dog. Like a little puppy at the table. You see, it didn't change what Jesus was saying because he came to bring the kingdom to Israel first. They were to be the first fruits and from there the whole world. That's what God was doing amongst the disciples. But he was softening his response to her and saying, look, the little puppies at the table... And she was saying, well, look, those little house dogs, when you break bread at the table, the crumbs fall down. They get stuff, don't they? (laughs) So she was responding with humor. And, you know, this is such a simple thing, but, folks, we have to keep a sense of humor. It's really important. 
Because God has a sense of humor. Did you know that? God finds things funny. He's not like mega serious guy with a long big beard and really serious about the world. He laughs. Jesus was a man who knew joy unsurpassed. I believe he had better jokes than Richard Jones. I've said it. It's out there. But Richard is growing into the stature of Christ. So I believe... Brother, I believe there's an anointing there for you. Grow into the fullness of Christ. I don't know whether he made jokes or not, but I know that he laughed a lot. And I know that he saw the humor in situations. And whatever situation you're in, whatever your life is like right now, learn to laugh as well. Don't take yourself too seriously. And you say, what, in the midst of all this pressure? Jesus did. You know, when he arrived at that house, he didn't want anyone to know he was there. In fact, if you look at the, the account in Matthew... Matthew says that she approached him and says, son of David. No, don't say that. Because that's an allusion to his messiahship. You can imagine Jesus sitting there saying, I don't want anyone to know. I've come for a rest. Oops. I've come for a rest. Don't start calling me son of David. He didn't react like that. He just had a bit of banter with her. And Greeks were known for banter. Jesus met her where she was and rolled with it. And she had a sense of humor. And do you know what? That's why Jesus responded. You think, would there have been any occasion where Jesus wouldn't have responded and healed? Well, yeah. Jesus responded to people's faith. Well, in this case, he responded, I don't think it was to the woman's persistence even. I think it was the fact that it was her sense of humor. He said, I really like that. Yes, I'm going to do that for you. Now, I'm not saying you've got to make God laugh to make him move on your behalf at all. But God wants you to keep your sense of humor, folks, whatever you're going through. One of the things that we have up there is love, life, and laughter. Laughter has to be present in the house of God, folks. We have to be people who laugh. Laugh at ourselves sometimes. It's good to laugh at yourself and to laugh at the situation. So this little sojourn, this little apparent detour, this journey that Jesus took, for me, it's a curiosity. Why? And that's why I've spent time pondering it and asking the Lord. And I think it was significant for him, and the depths of which maybe we'll never know. But it spoke to me to say, actually, do you know what? Jesus feels pressure. Jesus felt pressure from all sides. And if you're feeling pressure in your life from different things, different sources that's coming to bear on you, Jesus knows what that feels like. He's not aloof. He's not like Superman and bulletproof in that sense. He knows what it feels like to feel like that. You can talk to him about it. And he'll say, do you know what? I know just what that feels like. I know what that feeling is like. And I can tell you how to handle it. I can tell you what the best thing is. Let me lead you. Let me lead you to a place of peace. And then have my peace and go with my peace. Jesus saw the moment. And there are times, folks, when we have to recognize that there is a moment to get some head and heart space when your life is just too crowded. And when that happens, listen to the Holy Spirit. Say, Lord, I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to take some space and allow you to speak into my life. One of the problems we have today, which has largely been created by the connectivity of the world, is that we cannot get any space from other people's voices. How on earth we imagine we're going to listen to the Holy Spirit when we've got 
things buzzing away all the time, and lots of voices. But you know what? The enemy wants you distracted. He wants you constantly bombarding with activity and voices so that you don't listen to the Holy Spirit, because he knows the Holy Spirit's God got what you need. I think you will know if that's you. And I want to say to our, not exclusively, but to our younger people, be aware that connectivity is the enemy's way of separating you from the voice of the Holy Spirit sometimes. Because there are so many messages to read and to listen to, and time can pass so quickly, and then you realize that the free time that you had has gone, and you've not received from the Lord. And the voice of the Lord will do you better than any other voice in your life. And lastly is this. Taking time out, giving God that space to speak to you, can be a really productive time. It doesn't mean we have to put our feet up, folks. It can actually mean a really productive time, not just there and then, because God blesses you, but actually you can receive things that you need for the next stage in your journey. And that's how crucial it was. If Jesus needed to do it, how much more do you think we need to do it? Yeah? Yeah. I would like this morning to pray for anyone who is feeling under pressure. I'd like to stand with you, and I believe that the Spirit wants to give you a release from that today. He not only wants you to know that Jesus knows how this feels, but he actually wants you to find the peace of God. And I believe he wants you to find wisdom today on where to make changes where they're necessary to create space in your life to hear the voice of God. Thanks for listening today. For more information about Living Rock Church and for more great teaching, visit www.livingrockchurch.org.uk.